Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. All right, well, we are, um, if you're new here or joining us uh, just this week, we're in a series called Liar, Liar. And the subtext of the, of the series is the truth about evil and how to overcome it. Now, I know the word evil maybe is used uh, in certain cases or maybe in, uh, in specific instances. Dave talked a little bit about that last week. Um, and, and I know even the word evil in our culture maybe brings up uh, things people saying, oh, that sort of has to do with the devil and all of that stuff. And uh, maybe it offends our 21st century uh, sensibilities. Um, but we all probably have the question, uh, like, what is wrong with the world? We know that things are not the way they're supposed to be, um, that, that things are not quite right. And, and, and maybe we might even throw up our hands and go, yeah, like, what is wrong with this world? When we read stuff or when things happen in our workplace or in our, in our neighborhood or in our school, uh, we have that question. Now, I've noticed about myself, just a little bit of confession, my response to that question is, oh, I know what it is. It's that, it's, it's our government. It's our, it's that moron who cut me off on the road, you know, this week. Like, clearly people just lose their minds when it rains. It's like, it's never rained before? Like, how long have you lived in Canada? It's snowing? Like, okay. So, like, it's, some, it's something, you know, there's this instinct in me to go, ah, it's, it's, it's that. It, it's that thing. Or I can read the paper or the news, or read the paper, read the news, you know, and just go, oh, that's dumb. Why did they do that? That person. But I've noticed it even in my marriage that I'm very quick to sort of go, hey, you shouldn't have, or why did you, or I may do that with my kids, you know, point at other people. Um, and I've noticed my kids do that too. Like if I'm late to the room and there's some kind of altercation that's happened, like usually there's fingers out, right? Like, hey, and if I'm trying to, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, that, there's a lot of yeah, buts, right? You know what I realized? They, they learned it, like from their mom. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> we, have to, we have to work on that. <laughs> it's bad. <clears throat> what, I'm, what I'm saying, you know, when, when, I, when I do this, right, is, well, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's, it's, it's that person or it's that thing or it's that circumstance or it's, it's you. It's not me. It's an instinctive response. And, and I don't know about you, but maybe you're a little bit like me, that that instinct is that, like, it's not me. One of the guys I listened to on podcast, he, he, he said, I've, I've counseled hundreds of couples over the years. And he said, when they come into my office and there's things going wrong in their marriage and I'll sit down with them and I'll take the whiteboard out and I draw a circle and I say, okay, let's imagine that this circle is a pie and the pie is all that is wrong in your marriage. And then he said, I'll ask each individual, draw me your slice. What's your slice of what's wrong in this marriage? He said, no one has ever drawn more than half. And he said, some people would just sit with their arms crossed and say, no, I have nothing to draw up there. It's not me. It's not me. They say that the failure rate in marriage is over 50%, but for second marriages, it's over 60%, and for third marriages, it's over 70%. And one of the, when they asked psychotherapists, one of the reasons for that, it's mostly, they said, because when people come out of the first marriage, their conclusion is, it wasn't me. 
what was wrong with that is over. And now I know, and now I'm going to go and marry the right person because it wasn't me. And regardless of the slice of the pie, they said if the individual has not unpacked how they may have contributed to the breakdown of that first relationship, the second one has a higher rate or likelihood of failing. I've never met someone who got let go from a job that said, you know what, I, I think I deserved it. Like I was kind of mailing it in. You know, I was cutting corners and, or at least said, yeah, you know, I understand. Like they, you know, the economy's tough. Like they needed to make some decisions. Rarely. It's usually, well, I can't believe they did that. No, they was treating, they had it in for me. And I, you know, I can't believe like, they kept that person, but they let me go. It's just a human nature. I'm not being critical. I think it's just, we're all, it's, we're all in it. That instinct is, it's not me. It, it's, it's, it's out there. And like I said, we learn it, I think, from a very young age. And what that should tell us is that maybe that is too simplistic a response. Maybe there's more to the story. I, I suggested to you an image a couple of weeks ago to think about this as a house. That if, if you know, you have the, the second and third floors painted and and decorated exactly how you want them to be and everything looks just so but there's this smell in the basement you're not really sure about it and you kind of want to ignore it say the basement's unfinished or whatever or it is finished but you don't go down there much and then you go and you find there's a little bit of a damp spot in one part of the carpet and then you realize that the wall is a bit damp you can put your fingernail in and then you start to sort of realize wait there's moisture in here and you rip away the drywall and you start to see there's water coming in from the foundation and i said in our lives even though we don't like to go to the basement very often, we don't like to feel around, we don't like to pull back and rip apart some stuff and say, what's really going on under the surface that we have to? That living on the second and third floor only saying, it's not me, it's not me, is too simplistic of a way to think about life because everybody's saying that. And our premise of this series is when you get to the bottom and the foundation, you will find that we as human beings have the propensity, the proclivity to live out of lies. Not lies that we tell, lies that we believe are true, but are not in fact. That the scriptures actually explain for us that the foundation of our lives and the foundational struggle, the human struggle, is actually one of a struggle with reality or seeing the world properly that we don't actually see the world properly. We believe something to be true, but it's actually false, which is to say not only are we potentially stumbling around in the dark, we think we see. The only thing worse than stumbling around in the dark is not knowing you are in the dark. And so that there are lies at work in our lives, in our relationships, whatever, that we tend to believe and that the, the, grit, the risk is that we're living with a skewed picture of reality. We don't actually see the way things are but that that's not the worst news. The worst news is there's not just lies, there is a liar. The scriptures tell us that the devil, the, the Satan, the, the, um, the one who is the opposition to God and to every human being is a fundamentally a liar. Jesus said once when he was talking about in the longest section that Jesus describes the devil, he's not describing horns and pitchforks and fire and all this kind of stuff. As I said, that tends to be more Dante's Inferno that shaped our image of, of the devil, not actually Jesus. Jesus says, the devil's native, native tongue is lies, 
I mean, that, man, that's a diss, right? You're, the devil's native tongue is lies. He was a liar from the beginning. What you'll find if you read the Christian story is that the world came undone, in a sense, by a lie, a distortion of reality, something that had partial truth in it, but was not fully true, and therefore we are all sort of tempted to live out of that. So we have a, a, a liar who is trying to destroy our lives, and his primary method of destruction is not demon possession or the exorcist or whatever, it's lies. And the only thing worse than living in the dark but not knowing we're in the dark is that we have an enemy that we don't believe in and can't see who is trying to destroy us. And so we said, man, how do we get to the bottom of this? How does Jesus become our savior? And the name that Jesus got called most often by his followers was Rabbi, teacher. Jesus said, whoever listens to me is on the side of truth. The truth of Jesus is what helps us see. Truth not as in statements of, you know, propositional statements. Truth as in let me show you what reality is. And so our hope, when we as Christians call Jesus as Savior, one of the ways he saves us is by teaching us truth and saying this is the way it really is. One of the letters that we're working through, one of the letters that uh, one of the early followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a church in Rome uh, is explaining some of this, and we're actually going to look at this today. Um, to understand, first of all, that at the beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul basically says this is a letter about all humanity's condition. Regardless if you're a Jew, you'll see if you read through the book of Romans and you can be tracking on our blog every week, and if you've never read scripture before, this is one of the great ways to do it because the blog on a weekly basis just explains a little bit of like what you're going to be reading. Um, but if you've been reading through Romans, the beginning of this is Paul saying, like, this is, I'm just giving you a description of what's going on with all of humanity, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. Now, Gentiles weren't like an ethnic group. They were every other ethnic group that weren't Jews. And so this is from the, he, Paul was a Jew, so he was using a context, a language that Jews understood. Jews had the world categorized into themselves, you know, our ethnicity and everybody else, which is kind of how all human beings are, right? So before we get critical with them, that's the way it is. And then Gentiles are all other ethnic groups. And Paul is describing the human condition that applies to every single person person. And so this is one of those letters that actually is very instructive for us in saying, well, what's going on in our lives? And he gets to this point after a section in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and he comes to the end, near the end of chapter three. It's a summary of everything he's been saying, and it's really important for us even this morning as we are sitting here saying, hey, I don't think it's me. Here's what he says in Romans 3, verse 9. You can, uh, if you want to look this up on your phones, it's Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 and then 19 to 20. Uh, if you don't have the Bible app, you totally should get it. Uh, you're about 100, 300 million people behind getting this thing, but trust me, if you say, I don't even know where to begin, get the Bible app. Got all kinds of languages on it. You can get it read to you in your car. It's wonderful. Paul says this, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge, listen, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we simply become conscious of our sin. In these three chapters and leading up to this conclusion, Paul is making one 
argument. It's not me is a lie. It's not me is a lie. He's been building this whole case to say Jews and Gentiles, and he's dealing with both groups, and he's going back and forth talking to them. We are all together under the power of sin. We're all in the same boat. We're all under the power of sin. First, he talks to Gentiles, because some of the Gentiles would say, well, we didn't grow up with the Jewish God. Like, that's not our God. We were raised differently. Paul says, I don't care how you were raised differently. Whatever religion you grew up in, if you didn't even know God or didn't know the law of God, you should have known enough through your conscience and through creation to know that God is real. He says, you didn't need a religion. Like some people say, well, I didn't grow up with those teachings. I grew up in a different religion. Paul says, it doesn't matter what you grew up in. Every one of you has a conscience and every one of you can look at the world and go, somebody made this. And he says, if you ignore him, you're accountable to him. If you ignore your conscience, you're still accountable to God, even if you didn't grow up with the Jewish law. He's saying, Gentiles, I'm sorry, you don't have an excuse. You are under the power of sin too. To which the Jews in the church, because there was a little bit of conflict going on in the church, because the church was rapidly growing in Rome, mostly Gentiles. And the Jews probably felt a little bit like, hey, what's the deal? Like, this is our religion. Like, he's our Messiah. You don't even, you don't even know what the word Messiah means. You weren't even looking for a savior. How come you're calling him savior now? But there was a little bit of that competition, and the Jews were now a minority. So this letter would have been read out, you know, because only about 17% of the world was literate at that time. And so the letters would have been read out loud in church, right? So you can imagine the Jews hearing this read out loud in church, you know, and Paul's kind of going after the Gentiles a little bit and saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you grew up with or what law you you say, well, I didn't know those things. He's like, yeah, you did. You knew in your heart what was right and wrong. And you ignored it. And they'd be like, oh yeah, just tell him, Paul. And then he goes to the Jews, right? Which he was a Jew and he was a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were people, the very few, the marginal few who were able to apparently keep the whole law. Now God had given them 10 laws and the 10 commandments that they made up another 629 right? So this is what human beings do, right? Like, we just like, well, what do you mean exactly that? Well, how can I know? Let's add, you know, so the Sabbath was like, keep the Sabbath. They had 39 other laws to keep the Sabbath. This is what religion does, right? And so the Pharisees were the very few people who managed to keep the 600 and something laws. They, were, they, weren't like a prof- they weren't professional religious people. They were people just who by their life said, we've done this well. And so Paul was one of those people. And he says to them, like he says to them something that would have stunned them, He basically said, all your law keeping did was make you aware of how sinful you are. He shreds the law in its ability to save them. He said, oh yeah, and because they looked down on the Gentiles because of their, you know, like what they did, what they ate, like their moral choices, their past, they were a mess, they didn't know any of these laws. And so the, the Jews sort of had this sort of, um, you know, superiority because, well, we have God's law and God's given to us and we keep the law. And Paul basically says, it means nothing. And then he quotes one of their own, uh, you know, their, 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 their greatest king, David, in Psalms. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. Now, the word righteous there is really important to think about because it, it has bad connotations for us because we always associate it with self-righteousness. But to be righteous is, if I can say it this way, is to be pure through and through. To, to be clean on the inside. To be, um, in a sense, 
considered perfect, to be someone who is radiant, who is light, who is holy in all of the best ways. And Paul says, no one is pure. Right? Which is when we say, it's not me. Not me. He says, nobody can say that. No one is pure. No one is clean on the inside. Everyone, he says, he doesn't say everyone has done bad things. He says everyone is under sin's power. Which is way more profound than saying everybody makes mistakes. He says, no, everyone is under the power of sin. No matter what you grew up with, no matter what your religious background is, no matter what you have done. And then he says this to the Jews, you will never be made righteous by the law. God will never look at you because of the good things you've done and say, you know what? You've done well. You've cleaned up your life. You're good. You're pure. He says, no one will be declared righteous by God. And in other words, and you know, God is the only one who has the ability to declare anyone righteous because God is the only righteous one, the only pure one. He says, nobody, God will not look at anyone and say, oh, your moral perfection, your beautiful track record, you never swear, you never do this, you never do that. You are pure. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous by what, because of what they've done. To which they would have just been they, these are people, and Paul himself had spent their whole lives justifying. Justification is saying, I, you know, to, to be declared righteous. Well, I've done these things, so God will accept me. And here's Paul. Well, somebody would have read a letter by Paul out in front of them saying, it doesn't mean a thing. All the law did in your life was help you realize that you didn't keep it. All your conscience did was help you realize that you were guilty. No one is going to be declared righteous by this. Part of the reason he's going after them on this is because the lie, it's not me, was destroying their relationships. They were having conflict in the church. These two groups of people who had come together in Christ, you can read it all the way through the letter, there was this back and forth. And, and the Jews were uh, upset or maybe judging the Gentiles because of what they ate or the background they came from or what they had done in their past or maybe what they were still doing and trying to sort out. And the Gentiles were upset with the Jews because some of the persecution that was coming was from Jewish people who were against this sort of Nazarene sect and, and maybe would have been upset with some of the ways that the Jews were treating them. And so there was this conflict between them. And Paul is saying to them both, listen, you both have sin in your lives. Neither one of you can be doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying to each other. This lie, it's not me, is destroying your relationships. That's why he spends three chapters just saying, can we just level the playing field? We are all in the same boat. And here's the thing, friends. The lie, it's not me, is destroying our relationships too. It is one of the most fundamental lies that destroys a marriage. When I refuse to accept honest observations and criticism from my wife, who is, who, who better to actually criticize me in a pot, and I don't use that in a negative word, than the person I live with? Who has a better viewpoint on my life and all of my junk and all of my stuff? It's my spouse. And yet the instinct in me is to say, yeah, but you, yeah, but you. 
and it pushes us apart. The lie, it's not me, is destroying our marriages. And some of us would say, well, yeah, but you don't understand. I was in a marriage that was like, it, 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 like that, that, they, they did all of it. Even if you say, okay, I had, I had a very sliver, small part of the pie. Some of it even is, well, what's happened in me since then that I'm still bitter and angry towards them. And I don't want to deal with my bitterness. I can I actually justify my bitterness. I have the right to be angry. I have the right to lick this wound. I have the right to be frustrated. I have the right to curse them under my breath. I have the right to not think highly of them because of what they did. Look what they did. See, sometimes it's not me. It's just that I am razor sharp. I have razor sharp clarity on what other people are doing. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I have real clarity on what the other person's done. That's what it's not me does, right? Okay, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, but, and that's destroying our marriages. It's destroying the church and the church's credibility in the world. Because the church has become a place, or even if it's not true anymore, people think that essentially this is a place that judges everybody else. That, that, uh, it's a place that speaks condemnation on the culture and on people around it. That more often the church has negative things to say about what people are doing and saying. And so the church itself has become a place of saying, it, we're not the problem in the world, it's the world, it's the government, it's all of this and there's all this. The church in a sense collectively can be pointing its finger and saying, it's not us, it's them, it's you. It's not me destroys our friendships, right? Sometimes our friends, Give us honest feedback, maybe not in the nicest way possible, maybe not with all, but it's actually true. But we don't want to hear it. It's not me. Sometimes our friends are pushed away from us simply because they don't want to hear us complain anymore about our boss or about our ex or about some other friend. And they just don't hang around us anymore because you know what? Every time I'm with you, it's always you talking about somebody else because your whole life has become marked by it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. It's not me is destroying workplaces where groups of people, whatever, give excuse for poor work because of what the bosses did or what the company's done or what the union did or what this, and it's always not me. And so toxic conversation and culture seeps into work and people aren't actually owning their stuff and doing what they need to do and actually working hard because why should I do that? Because they haven't this and they're not loyal and that's, it's always, it's not me. It's killing relationships in the workplace. It's breeding toxicity. That's why Paul is going after that. I know these words sound aggressive, but friends, this is actually, he is trying to uncover the lie that is in the basement of all of our lives. You cannot say it's not you. We all are under the power of sin. And listen, sometimes that lie just needs to get burst to say, okay, maybe you didn't do, maybe you didn't deserve what your employer did to you. Maybe you didn't deserve, you know, and, and for some of you that have been in abusive relationships, let me just clarify, nothing you've done has deserved how other people have treated you. That's not what I'm saying. But part of the acknowledgement is just saying the same blackness in them that caused them to do that is in me too. No, I didn't deserve what they did to me. And maybe I played a very small role in the breakdown of this relationship or in that employment relationship or with my friends. But the stuff that's in them is the same thing that's in me. I have the same infection that they do. When we burst the lie, that's not me. What are we saying yes? We have to know what we're saying yes to. It's not, oh, you know, I'm imperfect. 
You know, I make mistakes from time to time. No, says Paul. Paul says, no, 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 this is not about you making mistakes. Like a, a mistake is you lock your keys in the car. What do you call something you know is wrong, but you plan to do, even though you said you'd never do it again, and you did it again? That's another category. This is sin, he says, and you're all under its power. We are all under its power. Now, this sounds bad, I know, but it's actually really freeing. Because you know why we're afraid to admit that it's me? Because if I admit that it's me, do you know what comes flooding into my life then? Shame. It is me. Shame. All of the guilt and the shame and like the the negative self-talk and all the stuff that we're trying to drown out or maybe that other people said, if I admit that I'm actually wrong, shame is going to come flooding in the door. And it's interesting, if you look at the first man and woman when they sinned, okay, immediately shame and blame come into their lives. First thing to do is this, "Ah," they're covering up, right? They're naked. God says, well, who told you you were naked? They were Ashamed, shame. Psychologically, sin began to worm its way, and shame, you know, like made them hide themselves even from each other and from God. And then when they were exposed, what did they do? Ha! Blame! Adam says to God, the best double uh, fisted insult ever the woman you gave me. Right? So clever. And men have been doing that ever since. And the woman says, Oh, that serpent! He, he did it. He tempted me. Blame, shame. I have to blame because if I don't blame, if I don't say it's you, it's you, it's you, it's not me, then shame comes flooding into my life. But you see here when Paul says in Romans, there's no room for shame. There's no room for shame. And this is the problem. I know I even represent as a pastor and a leader of a church people that have represented shame in your life, that have pointed the finger, that have accused you. And I just, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, we, like, that was wrong. The church has no right to point the finger at anyone. That's what Paul says. None of you, you all just put your fingers away. It would be like two drowning men, one's laughing at the other. Ha ha ha, you're drowning. Paul says, you're all in the same boat. Nobody is righteous. It means, friends, nobody can be pointing the finger at you. You don't need to feel shame to admit you're a sinner. It's just an honest admission because no one has the right to point the finger at you. We are all in the same boat. That's why this is freeing. Paul levels the playing field. There's nobody. And he, for the Jews, right? He was bringing them down saying, you've been on your, standing on the law, standing on your righteousness, looking down at other people saying, you don't do this, you should have done that. And doesn't that just characterize so much of what religion does? It just makes us self-righteous. And Paul says, nobody can be self-righteous. Nobody can declare themselves righteous. He shreds the law. You're all standing in the same place. Not only can you not blame, we do not have to fear that shame comes into our life. Why? Because there's only one person who could point the finger at us. The one righteous one that Paul says, no one righteous, not even one. Only God, the righteous one. But look what Paul continues. Verse 21. But now... I was going to title this sermon, The Butt You're Allowed to Stare At. Okay, but I didn't. Okay? 
But whenever you see the word but, right? It's just like, oh my gosh, what's he about to say, right? You're all in the same boat. Everyone's sin. Nobody's righteous. You cannot be declared righteous by what you do. But now, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified. In other words, all of the law was doing was pointing in this direction. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You got an amen for me? Yes. You know you can do that, right? regularly okay (laughs) god presented christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness his purity his goodness his holiness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in jesus If the lie is, it's not me, reality, truth is, it is me, but it's not up to me. It is me, but it's not up to me. Yes, I'm in that boat. Yes, I'm under the power of sin. Yes, it is me, but it's not up to me to get me out of this. I could never get me out of this. God, the righteous one, has looked at me and declared me righteous by faith in God. Jesus. So when God looks at us in Christ, he says, you are pure. You are good. I have brought back what I made good in the first place through the death of my son. And that's why there's no shame. Because when the worst about you is known, what do you have to hide anymore? Right? When we're all in the same boat and we go, yep, we are all under the power of sin. Yes, it is me. I have the propensity to destroy my relationships. This is what I do, right? When we can come to the place and admit that, not that we don't care, but we're honest and saying, yes, this is my situation. There is no shame anymore because at that point, through faith in Jesus, I'm declared righteous. It is me, but it's not up to me. The only one who could truly say it wasn't me made himself sin, allowed himself to be accused and killed and buried so that you and I, who cannot say it's not me, are free, are free from the power of sin. This is why we call the life, death, resurrection of Jesus good news. And what happens when you start to live in this? Not only do you embrace God's forgiveness, you are set free from judging other people. Right? You are set free from what other people have done or should have done or how you want to talk to them. You actually begin to be free from bitterness and unforgiveness. Because when I can admit, yeah, it's me. I regularly contribute to the breakdown of relationships in my school, in my family, in my marriage, in my workplace. I regularly do it. But in Christ, God has set me free. It means that we can go from saying, but they, but they, which you're so so good at, but they, to now I. Now I. 
now I. Not but they anymore. Now I. And I wrote down a few statements of, of what now I statements could transform your life and my life. Now I can be free from shame. Right, some of us, I, I just felt some of us just needed to hear that this morning. I am free from shame. No more condemning voices, no more accusations. I am free. Now I am free from shame. I do not need to be afraid to admit that I'm a sinner because there's not accusation and pointing fingers at me. The only one who has the right to point a finger at me has said, you are righteous because of my son. Now I can receive what Jesus has done for me. Right? As long as we're fine and don't need a savior, we cannot receive Jesus. It is when we come to this point, realize, yep, I'm under the power of sin and I couldn't do anything to get out of it. Suddenly the gift of Jesus becomes beautiful to us. We receive it. Go, yeah, I, I actually do need that. I'm desperate for that. Now I can confess how my sin has affected this relationship because I don't have to be afraid of shame anymore. I can admit when I have messed up, I can confess what I have done to contribute to the breakdown of the friendships, relationships, the working relationships in my life. Now I'm free to ask for forgiveness from him, from her, from them. I can go boldly and ask for forgiveness because I'm not living under shame anymore. I can admit when I need forgiveness. Now I can admit to bitterness and resentment. Like I said, maybe you didn't do anything to deserve how the other person treated you. And if you were abused or taken advantage of verbally, physically, sexually, anything, you did nothing to deserve that. But sometimes other people's sin causes us to sin. We react to sin with sin. And growing in our heart is bitterness and anger and resentment. When we have received and say, okay, there's a blackness in me that someone else's sin caused now, but I got to stop blaming them for it and accept that I have chosen to cherish this in my heart and it's turned into something black and ugly and I want to be free. When we say, okay, no more but they, but now I. Now I can be free from resentment and bitterness. Because that's why Jesus came. Because I'm in the same boat. The same blackness in them is also in me. Now I can start the process of forgiveness. And I say process because it is. It's a journey. Now I can begin to say, okay, I want to be free. Now I can take responsibility for making this better. I can't control what they do. I can't control what they continue to do. I can't change what they've done, but I can take responsibility for making this better. I don't have to be afraid of shame anymore. I don't have to blame. I don't have to shame. I'm free from this. In a few minutes, we're going to pray just a prayer uh, of response to this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a song that just celebrates what Jesus has done for us. I know that what I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking me to, you to do, uh, me to do, is very uncomfortable. It's way more comfortable to stay where we are. It's way more comfortable to stay focused on what other people have done or should do or need to do. It's way harder to say, okay, what if I begin to admit this? But I also know I have seen people in their marriage, in their workplaces, in their own personal lives, who finally came to that point that said, okay, I won't do this anymore. I will admit. 
it's not me is a lie. It is me, but it's not up to me. I have seen people's lives, marriages, totally transformed. I have seen it with my own eyes. I have seen it in my own life. The, the thing that we want most actually comes when we are willing to just admit the thing that is hardest to say. But the reason you do it is because I want that. I want to be healed. I want to be free. I want this transformed life, this transformed relationship.